Good evening, everyone, and welcome to the Real Science Exchange, the podcast where leading scientists and industry professionals meet over a few drinks to discuss the latest ideas and trends in animal nutrition. Summer heat is at full strength. It was actually 90 degrees here at my house over the weekend, and that means heat stress for your animals. Tonight, we've brought together a powerhouse roundtable of experts in the field of heat stress management to talk through the physiology and mechanisms for effectively managing heat stress. Hi, I'm Scott Sorrell, one of your hosts uh, at the Real Science Exchange. Tonight, we have a very special opportunity to sit at the pub table with three icons of heat stress management. Dr. Bob Collier from University of Idaho, Dr. Rosemary Zimbelman from Dairy Nutrition Services, and Dr. Lance Mumgard from Iowa State University. Lance, you've joined us before at the Real Science Lecture Series, but uh, this is everyone's first time at the exchange. So welcome to everyone and cheers. Cheers. <laughs> Thank you, Scott. Excellent. Yeah, Dr. Bumgard, uh, you've worked with both Dr. Collier and Dr. Zimmelman on some research uh, project. Any stories that you can share with us? And also, what are you drinking this afternoon? Well, I'm actually drinking uh, Redbreast 12. It's an Irish nice. whiskey. Uh, <laughs> it's a premium brand from Jameson and Sons. And man, it is smooth whiskey, dude. Yep. Whiskey. My wife is actually from County Galway in Ireland, so um, it's kind of fitting. Stories, uh, man, Scott, in, in the fear of mutual destruction, I better keep my stories to the minimum. <laughs> you could probably uh, ruin me quicker than I can ruin them. But, uh, it, was a, it was a very productive time in Arizona. Bob hired me in, in 2001. And there's a lot of productive people at Arizona back then. Louis Marie, Matt Bambala, Rob Rhodes, others. Um, it was a productive time to be there. A fun time. Mm, excellent. Dr. Collier, first, what's in your glass tonight? And then tell us what uh, led to your interest in studying heat stress in dairy cattle. Well, I'm drinking coffee because I'm old and uh, I need that extra boost. Keep me up late at night. But... Um, well, as far as my interest in heat stress, uh, I, when I joined the faculty at the University of Florida in '75, uh, uh, that was uh, the position that I took was uh, the environmental physiology position, and uh, I had never really uh, worked in the area of environmental physiology before. It was a new field to me, but Florida is very uh, consistent in the summer as far as uh, a heat stress environment. I can't imagine a place with a tougher environment because of not just the high temperature, but also the consistently high relative humidity. And later in my career, when I was in Arizona, uh, you have higher air temperatures, but lower relative humidity, which actually gives you lots of options for cooling in uh, moving air and in evaporating water into that air, uh, which you don't have um, nearly to that extent in Florida. So I, I consider Florida uh, a, a much harsher environment than Arizona. And I think the milk production uh, per state kind of agrees with that when you look at the average milk yield in Florida versus Arizona. Another, another uh, comment I might just add is that through this whole uh, last uh, 50 years, what has really changed most dramatically is not so much the environment, but the cow. Uh, the cow, because of uh, genetic 
basically selecting for higher and higher levels of production. The cow today is producing twice as much heat uh, as a cow did in, in 1940, 45, or in the, in the early 1950s. People often lose sight of that fact. They worry about the environment, but it's, we've, we changed our cows so much. Uh, and that is uh, part of the reason why we have an increased need for cooling, regardless of where you are in the United States. Summer heat loads now at the levels of production we're at, uh, you know, typically uh, just about any place in this country, a cow's going to experience heat stress at some point during the summer, which didn't always used to be the case. And it hasn't, it isn't so much climate change that's done that as what we've done to alter the productivity of the cow, uh, which increases its uh, maintenance requirements uh, in the way of uh, handling, cooling, feeding, all the things that go along with supporting high milk production, we have to alter because of the external uh, uh, heat load issue that the cows face. They come, become more and more sensitive to heat stress and uh, more and more resistant to cold stress. Interesting. And finally, Dr. Zibelman, welcome to the exchange. Um, you're bringing the practical aspect to tonight's uh, conversation since you're working directly with dairies as a nutritionist and the owner of Dairy Nutrition Services. What are you drinking tonight? And as a third generation dairy producer and second generation nutritionist, what changes are you seeing around heat stress management at the farm level? Well, uh, tonight or this morning, I should say, because I'm still at work, I've managed to slip in some Kahlua into my coffee. So <laughs> <laughs> cheers to you all. Cheers. <laughs> you know, um, back when I started my graduate studies with um, Matt Bambala and then Lance and Bob as well for my PhD, um, I'm born and raised in Arizona. All I know is heat stress. So for me, being on dairies very young and seeing the cows and always talking about what can we do to improve their comfort and in the environment during these summer months was something that was really important to me. So um, I see technology advancing. I see different units that we've been able to bring to the table, um, evaporative cooling methods that have improved over time, um, some nutritional strategies that thanks to people like Lance and Bob, we've been able to, to kind of dial in or try to improve for the cow as well. So I think those are some of the improvements that we've seen um, in the last 40 years. Excellent. And last but not least, uh, Dr. Clay Zimmerman, my steady co-host. Clay, do you have anything cool in your glass tonight? I do. Um, I have a, a watermelon hard cider here. <laughs> nice. Yeah, very summery. For the season, yes. I'd expect no less of you, man. That's, that's awesome. Good. So, Scott, what's, what's in your glass tonight? Oh, Fancy you should ask. Uh, I uh, was was looking at the the, the liquor uh, shelves this this last weekend, and I found this. Uh, it's called Bastille. It's a French whiskey. I don't know much about it, but it, the little um, note here says it's 94 points. So I'm going to assume that's pretty good. I've had it, uh, having it, enjoy it, um, and it reminds me a little bit of a uh, an Irish whiskey, really. Uh, or maybe a little bit of a scotch kind of a flavor to it as well. It's certainly different than the U.S. bourbons here. And I'm drinking it from this very special glass. My daughter, uh, she goes to The Ohio State University, and she is in evolutionary biology. And so she got this for me for Christmas, and I just got the glass because we did not get together um, due to COVID. Um, 
for Christmas time. So I was just able to see her the other day. So that was a special treat. Uh, her name's Hannah, by the way, Hannah Sorrell. Uh, so thank you, Hannah. So Bob, let's, let's uh, start with a basic. Um, what is heat stress and how do we define it? Well, first, uh, any stress um, generally uh, will uh, place pressure on the physiological system of the animal so that uh, in order to meet that stress, uh, the maintenance requirements of the animal will go up. Uh, whether that's a shipping stress or a, a uh, let's say, starvation as a stress or uh, the uh, uh, impact of heat or cold, um, in order to meet that um, added uh, pressure, physiological pressure on the body, uh, the animal has to divert uh, resources in order to meet that stress. And those resources uh, are added to what's called maintenance cost. So a true stress always uh, increases the maintenance cost of an animal. And typically that energy or protein or whatever that is needed to meet that maintenance cost comes out of production uh, because uh, that is now required for the survival of the animal. And, and so may, uh, production typically will drop then uh, as a result of the stress uh, because the animal has to divert those resources to, to meet the stress. Stresses are additive. So uh, if you have multiple stressors on a dairy, and typically there are, uh, crowding, social stresses, uh, you know, the, the stress of uh, disease or uh, just um, management-related issues where animals aren't handled properly, and these all are additive and impact production. And that's why if you look at the uh, heritability in milk production, only 25% uh, is related to the genetics of the animal. And 75% of the differences between animals and, and between dairies in production is due to the environment the cows are in. And, and so individual farms can vary dramatically and the actual environment around the animals, the microenvironment, and how many stressors are in that environment, and therefore how much of its uh, production ability goes just to maintenance in order for the animal to survive in that environment. So if you, if you took uh, a cow that's producing, let's say a world record holder around 75 to 70, 78,000 pounds of milk now, and clone that animal and spread it uh, millions of copies across all the dairies in the United States, uh, you would not get uh, every cow producing that world record. You would get a bell-shaped curve. Uh, the actual median, the, the mean of that curve would be a little higher because of improved genetics of that animal but because of the tremendous difference in environments, you get a bell-shaped curve in milk yield across, even though they're all copies of the same animal. So basically, heat stress is a stress, uh, and um, because dairy cows, as I mentioned uh, earlier, have in, in this country, have dramatically improved their milk production, um, our cows are very sensitive to heat stress, which requires uh, 
So I don't, I don't know if I've kind of wandered a little bit on, on answering your question, but the uh, bottom line is uh, heat stress is a major threat to productivity of dairy cows, and it's something every producer in the country does now. It has to spend some time addressing the impact of heat stress on their cows. Hey, Bob. Um, yeah. I was three years old when you joined the faculty at the University of Florida. <laughs> That's good. <laughs> can I can I ask you a qu uh, a question? Because I think it has a lot of practical implications on the maintenance cost. And you know what Bob said is written about, you know, by by the legends and bioenergetics. But what if? What if maintenance costs actually were not increased during heat stress, but actually were reduced? And then from Rosemary's perspective, what, what type of implications would that have on ration balancing during heat stress? Theoretically, what if they're reduced? Just don't see how that would happen, but maybe I'm wrong and maybe I'm just not viewing it from a, a smart enough, you know, Cornelian perspective. But uh, I, I just... Uh, on farm, it's just one of those things that you automatically see, you know, you've, you've got the energy dense diet that you've been feeding and then automatically heat comes in and boom, you're down and what's changed, right? Just the environment. So I, I don't know how that survival mechanism hasn't happened, even when in humans, it kind of changes, right? You know, our basal levels of needing our metabolic rates. And then all of a sudden we put ourselves in a, a different stressful environment and that's what we see too. So, um, sorry. Lance, I'm not that imaginative. Well, I was going to say, you know, I'm trying to think about a situation that would, that would happen. But theoretically, if you if you uh, reduce maintenance costs, it should allow the animal to spend more towards production. Okay, but you remember a, a part of maintenance cost is the uh, energetic need to maintain a constant body temperature, right? To generate heat to maintain a healthy body temp. And I've always wondered... Um, you know, now when, it, when an animal is in a hot environment, the burden to generate its own metabolic heat to maintain body temp has now kind of been removed. And um, anyway, we're going down a rabbit hole maybe here. I guess another question I have, Lance, is like, what is what is the cost of having to keep your body warm or the cow's body warm? And what is the cost of having to cool the body? Because I guess in in my perspective, based on what we've seen you know, with all the stuff that we've done at the data collections we've done at the University of Arizona back in the day, you see so much more energy expenditure with panting, respiration rates, trying to dissipate that heat that I guess I just see those costs increasing or that that cost increasing rather than, than not. Yep. So there's, you know, certainly an uh, increased energetic cost of that working diaphragm, right? Um But is that is that offset by the reduction in in metabolic heat produced by the other muscles of the body? I, I, I don't know. I'm just throwing out. I know this is kind of an out there concept, but I'm just I've always wondered. I don't think it costs much to sweat. I don't know how much ATP it costs to, to sweat. Well, I think the problem with the cows is the type of sweat glands they have versus the type of sweat glands that horses have. Right. Cows are inefficient sweaters. And in, in my from what I've learned from geniuses that are on this call and more <laughs> uh, cows, cows and horses have the same sweat planets it's humans that have uh, the epitracheal 
Uh, that was it, yeah. And humans are, are pretty good sweaters, but the horse is the champion that yeah. can sweat twice the rate of a human. So, so how uh, do we make can, that happen in cows? That's that's the uh, opportunity. If we could get cows to sweat like horses, we could dramatically improve their ability to stand the thermal load. So how how realistic is that? Right, we can do virtually anything now with gene splicing. What's is that going to happen someday? Uh, I think it's realistic, but um, you know, uh, because it takes water, and so does milk yield. So we you have to wonder uh, where how much is going to impact milk yield to have high high sweating rate cows. We really don't know if uh, we could sort that out without, in other words, get a high produce high sweating rate cow without impacting the ability uh, to produce milk. But interestingly, you know, uh, the mammary gland is a modified sweat gland. So uh, hmm. the, the, the process, uh, once you, uh, I think once we get into the, the actual biology of it, it's going to be pretty fascinating. Hmm. So Bob, Bob what's, what's different physiologically about these heat tolerant breeds? Well, uh, if you look at traditionally, uh, heat tolerant breeds grow slower. Uh, so if, you, if you're talking about beef animals, it takes t twice as long to get to maturity. Uh, if you're talking about milk yield, I like to compare Pakistan with uh, 33 million dairy animals, and they produce one tenth the milk production of the United States with basically 9 million dairy animals. So they're chronically short of milk and chronically short of forage. The, the truth is that, you know, the cows uh, are in, in the dairy that's really in the genetics. If you brought in high genetic uh, uh, capable animals, they still have to learn how to manage it. So it, it's a evolving process when you do that in any country. And China, China has gone through this, you know, they've got some really fantastic facilities, but, uh, have really had uh, some major disasters when it comes to uh, getting uh, cows at those facilities to perform. So. Mm -hmm. Rosemary, let's kick it over to you for a second. Um, what what are your dairy dairy farmers doing from a mechanical perspective to mitigate heat stress? You know, I sit here and I, I listening to Bob and talking about you know we've 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 seen the research, we've done what we can to alter the environment as much as possible. Maybe there's not much more we can do there as far as research shows and uh you know nutritionally there's only so many things that may or may not help depending on where you're at and what your herd looks like um i would eat and i sit here and i think you know it, it's still back to basics for me um i i still see a lot of overcrowding i still see a lot of people who just want to milk more cows and want to milk what they need to milk and and i understand that from a survival and an economic standpoint for sure um, but i just wonder how much milk we're leaving on the table during heat stress and those types of things. So I go back to the basics of what do we do to alter that diet um, in the summertime in the heat stress moments that would be different and, and what can we do, you know, to manage our herd better so that we don't have these issues. Where do we, if you can't afford cooling everywhere, it doesn't make sense for you to have cooling everywhere. Is there a place that you should implement cooling, you know, um, in just one area or another? I think size of herd really makes a difference because um, you can do things 
maybe with less cows than you can with more cows. And then you can apply more with more cows than you can with less cows. So there's different things that I think can happen across herds. Um, but I still think uh, as a whole, as an industry, I, I think we still see a lot of, of management things that could be improved upon. So you mentioned uh, kind of dietary uh, or, or, or nutritional strategies. What are some of those kinds of things that you implement? Well, I think trying to, you know, in the summertime to decrease the amount of metabolic heat that we're creating with the ration um, is, is something that we need to focus on as nutritionists to try to encourage our, our dairy producers to go towards that direction during the summer. Um, I think, you know, we have products out there, you know, yeast, um, direct fed microbials, buffers, um, you know, uh, heat altering mechanisms like niacin. Um, and then we also have, uh, you know, the fats, the fats have always played a huge part in, in helping us get a more energy dense diet during the summertime. So looking at those cost effective things that work for your herds and whatever location you are, and whatever size they are, um, is also, you know, something that is detrimental to helping them get more comfortable. Lance, kind of maybe switching uh, gears just a little bit. I know that uh, you've done a lot of work with heat stress and leaky gut. Um, it, Tell us what your learnings are there and, and uh, how we can, how we can uh, mitigate or treat that. Yep. So uh, we believe that almost, almost all of negative consequences of heat stress emanate from the gut, right? Obviously, you have a reduction in feed intake, which is a big portion of it, about half. But there's this other 50% that's difficult to identify where it's coming from. At least I'm not healed. And um, so what I think happens is you have this redistribution of blood. You also have a psychological stress issue going on. And um, there's mast cells that reside inside the gut. And when they become activated by this stress hormone called, called corticotropin releasing factor, they release their contents. And these proteases, TNF-alpha, histamine, etc., for some unknown reasons, cause the gut tight junction proteins to be essentially pulled back into the cells that make them and the gut becomes leaky. And this allows an antigens, hell, it allows entire pathogens to infiltrate the barrier of the intestine. And the animal has an immune response. And ultimately the, the biological consequences of heat stress aren't very dissimilar to any other infection, mastitis or metritis, for example. The animals have an immune response. So, um, yeah, I think dietary strategies that are, are targeting the barrier function of, of the GI tract will probably pay dividends. That's difficult, right? Uh, one third of the adult population has a, a barrier issue of their own bowel uh, in humans, right? Irritable bowel syndrome, celiacs, Crohn's, et cetera, colitis. And so the human pharmaceutical companies have been chasing barrier function target molecules for a very long time and have essentially yet to be overly successful, right? So uh, not to be a Debbie Downer, but I think there's a, a massive opportunity in targeting the gut during heat stress. Uh, I'm just not sure we have any a magic bullet yet. There's certainly some things that we can help manage it heavy metals, antioxidants, stuff like that. 
Sounds like we really need to do is just avoid it in the first place. And prevent her from getting hot. Yep. Yep. So on that, on that same token, you Scott, you know, there's places where it's obviously very, very hot in the middle East uh, that don't have a problem getting high producing cows, you know, 44, 45 kilos on 13,000, 20,000 plus milking cows. So um, obviously it can be done, but uh, what, what is the management strategies that are being done there? nutritional strategies. Um, but again, I, I think it's back to the basics. It's just such an important thing to help those cows um, get get it right. Uh, even with uh, incredibly high afternoon uh, temperatures in the summer, uh, Arizona has been ranked up there as far as the average production, production per cow uh, in the top three, typically. I don't know if they're there today, but uh, when, when I was at Arizona, we were always in the top three as far as uh, production per cow. And that was due to uh, high quality uh, forages, which you get in dry environments. Um, you, you know, it's really difficult to get 10% moisture in hay in Florida. And so uh, you just don't, you don't get that quality of hay. And then you, you can also cool your cows more effectively in uh, Arizona than you can in Florida. So those two uh, factors uh, really helped uh, the Arizona dairy industry as far as improving production. Capital costs are going to be high because of the relative cooling uh, equipment required in Arizona compared to Florida. But uh, still, uh, if you look at the production cost, uh, Arizona is producing milk at a lower cost than Florida is for sure, you know, on a on a per hundred weight basis, so. Yeah, so I'm wondering, is that because it's a dry heat there? I mean, I, I was listening to Bobby was down there in Florida and he thinks that's the, the worst environment. Is, is that kind of the secret? Is, is environments where, the, where it's a little drier? Uh, well, Arizona is pretty dry. Um, and I don't know that we, we achieved that level of milk production on that many cows as a state. Um, but I will say that, um, you know, I think it's obviously you've got a better chance without the humidity than than with it. So, uh, yeah, I think that's part of the equation. But again, I, I go back to nutrition management control of what you can control for these cows to get more comfortable. Mm -hmm. so, yeah, I just jump in here real quick. You know, if you've got a Saudi barn in uh, Arizona with the air temperature of 115 degrees uh, and the Saudi barn, you know, has no sides to it, it's open. But if you have um, corral cool coolers going in that barn, the air temperature in that barn will be 80 degrees uh, because of the huge amount of uh, water that can be evaporated. Bringing the air temperature from 115 down to 80 is quite an accomplishment. Yep, if, you're in Florida, if you're in Florida, you would never uh, get the air temperature down to 80 degrees inside an open or a closed barn. <laughs> You know, you just couldn't do it. The humidity is too high. And here in Arizona, we've got great herds with, I mean, great dairies all across the board. Some have better cooling than others. Some are older than others. It's a huge capital investment. And again, you know, the West has always been a, a little not not so well paid as the East. So it's always been an issue of, of what can we do? What can we afford? And what does that look like? And what does that investment look like? So being creative about that is and being economical with our dairy producers is always, always part of the challenge too. Mm -hmm. 
Scott, you, you mentioned the humidity, right? Uh, so we just hosted the Global Dairy Talks only about a month ago. And there's a fella on there named Mike McCullough, McCulley, sorry. And he talked about how heat stress is regionalizing where dairy cows are farmed in the United States, in large part because of this lack of cooling opportunities in the Southeast. He was really focusing on Georgia and South Carolina and in those states and how the dairy cows are moving from there just because they're not able to cool them effectively because of the humidity. Mm -hmm. He gave a really nice talk. Yeah. And does he anticipate that those moves will continue to take place? I'm going to assume there's going to be a certain base amount of animals to, to supply the fluid supply that's going to have to stay there, right? Well, that's what he was mentioning, right? Is that that's a huge population uh, area of the country that obviously needs fluid milk, but uh, the milk's being shipped in um, from other regions, Texas Panhandle. Yeah. In mm -hmm. fact, uh, you know, the milk in Florida, uh, Florida producers are paid uh, the going price of milk in Wisconsin plus the shipping costs from Wisconsin to Florida. So mm. typically that's how milk price is established in Florida. Uh, and that because it's recognized that the heat stress adds um, additional cost of production. Yeah. Good point. As we look at things like uh, global warming, are, are we going to see uh, globally different migrations of animals kind of pooling up in certain geographies versus others? What do you guys uh, have any thoughts on that? Uh, I think it'll always go to the least cost position. I think agriculture has to do that over time to survive. So dairy is no different than any other uh, ag business. And so um, places that can produce milk, uh, the most efficiently with uh, least cost and also least impact on the environment are going to be uh, successful in the long term in dairy. Yeah, this is complicated too because of uh, the human population is disproportionately uh, expanding as well. And that human yeah. population growth is primarily occurring around the equator, right? Yeah. So uh, animal agriculture will migrate to where the hungry mouths are. So then it's gonna have this balancing act like Bob just got done talking about where, where can we cost effectively produce food, but still be relatively close to where the mouths are at. It, it'll be interesting to see what it looks like in 50 years. Yeah. What, what role will water availability play in that? It's, good. it's gonna have a major impact. Huge. Of the water requirement. Um, and it varies, of course, by uh, by uh, livestock, uh, but certainly dairy cows are big consumers of water, and so uh, uh, high quality water is the other point. It's, it's not just water, but it has to be high quality water uh, to uh, safely produce milk. Yeah, talk a little bit about water quality, Bob. Um, we all know it needs to be pathogen free, but you talk about mineral content or the lack thereof as well. Oh, right. Yeah. And, and cost. I mean, you can get high quality water, but what's the cost to get there? You know, in some places it it comes out of the ground as a high quality uh, source of uh, nutrition, uh, but other places it takes extensive treatment uh, to reduce the salinity, uh, which more and more is a, an issue in California and the West. 
and uh, also uh, uh, bacterial contamination, uh, which might alter uh, the healthfulness of the, of the water. So uh, a clean, safe uh, water supply is not a minor issue. Mm-hmm. Yeah, you've got pH as well, hardness of the water, all those things you gotta you gotta test and look out for because they're nightmares if you encounter them. Mm-hmm. Especially places where you can drill your own wells and they're not actively managed areas, water areas. That's something, but I think that goes back to Lance's point about these dairies are gonna move where they can get close enough to feed people but still have all those beneficial requirements in order to be cost effective. Mm-hmm. Let's talk a little bit about the future, guys. Um where are we headed? Let's let's put look into the the crystal ball and where are we going from. Uh, maybe it's a, a uh, equipment or mechanical perspective. What's state of the art and where are we going? Where are we going with genetics? I know we've talked a little bit about that, uh, but are we going to start seeing cows with big Brahma ears on them so they can dissipate heat? You know, uh, Lance, why don't we start with you? Where do you think we're going? Where do we need to go? Oh, it's. Yeah, I, I'm, I'm, Bob's mentioned it already a, a few times. He, he he mentioned that our cooling capacity has been maximized, and um, that's a little scary when you think about it, right? Uh, I like to hear Bob talk more about that. So there's really no more advances to be made from an engineering perspective. You think, Bob? Well, we you know we have uh, some opportunity in conductive cooling. Um, in other words, cooling the uh, surface the cows are going to lie on. Uh, we've done some initial work, but that's yet to be proven economically viable. Uh, you know, there's has to be a capital investment there by research that kind of uh, approach. And that could be for both heating and cooling, uh, uh, which would be very advantageous in the north uh, when you've got uh, sand bedding that freezes and it becomes as hard as concrete, you know. So um, um, ha- having a way to regulate the environment the animals are lying on is one opportunity that, that is not tapped yet. But as far as uh, the effectiveness of fans, uh, we know uh, fan sizes, we know wind speeds, we know the impact of relative humidity. Uh, and so those are pretty much maximized. And so where do we go from here? Well. But I mentioned there's one, and that's conductive cooling. Um, but then you got to start looking at the cows. What what can we do to help the cow become more thermal tolerant? Uh, depending, and or you you know the industry is going to move. Interestingly, you know a lot of people don't realize, but uh, Idaho is now uh, third largest dairy state in the country. A lot of cows have moved into Idaho, and what's Idaho got? Well, they've got clean water. Lots of it, and uh, a great uh, low humidity for that high-quality forage, but also it's cooler in, in Idaho, uh, so you don't have as much heat stress. So uh, there's been a big pocket. Of, I mean, the uh, state of Idaho has got, uh, over the last 10 years, is a dramatic increase in, in cow numbers, um, which you might not have predicted 10 years ago, but uh, when you look at all the reasons why it, it becomes obvious, um, especially the regulations that producers in California are looking at and the water quality issues and the water availability issues 
Uh, Idaho looks pretty attractive. Bob, from a genetics perspective, and you know that slick gene in Florida that Pete Hansen's working on, with is there an opportunity for the slick slick gene to work better in an arid environment? I presume. Uh, so, so uh, the problem with the slick gene is uh, uh, it's the prolactin receptor. And the prolactin receptor is really important for milk production and also for reproduction. So um, the slick gene, um, if you look for homozygous animals, they're very few and far between. Um, heterozygous animals, where you've got one copy of the gene, appear to be uh, the most effective as far as um, survival and, and having a, a a better response to a hot environment, but we haven't yet proven that they can produce more milk. So the the, the, the long run, how would you, if it has to be a heterozygous animal that takes a different breeding approach. So there's still questions. Um, so the slick gene uh, is, is an opportunity, uh, but it may be limited because of those issues. Uh, what we really want is uh, a, a sweat gland in the dairy cow that's more productive. And like I said, if mammary gland's a modified sweat gland, and we, we've got that modified sweat gland up to 73,000 plus pounds of, of milk at a 305-day lactation, I think we can get cows to, if we just doubled sweating rate, it would have a huge impact on, on the cow's ability to uh, withstand the thermal load. Uh, what's a lot of, you know, it takes one calorie to raise a, a gram of water one degree centigrade. That's how that's the measurement for a calorie. But if you just evaporate that same amount of water, it takes uh, 580 calories. Hmm. So evaporating one gram of water uh, gets rid of 580 uh, calories just to evaporate it. So, um, yeah, doubling sweating rate would have a huge impact, which means going from about uh, 300 uh, grams per square meter to 600 grams per square meter of, of skin surface. Uh, but, you know, horses can produce 2,000 uh, liters or, or grams of water or two liters per hour per square centimeter. So uh, the... the uh, biology says it can be done. The question is, um, you know, what it, it's going to take a program to uh, really identify what regulates sweating rate. Uh, we developed uh, ways to isolate sweat glands and to culture them, but um, before I uh, left uh, Arizona, but never really got into what regulates sweat gland function. We know what the receptors are. We don't know what regulates how sweat glands work in cattle. It's still a big unknown. So it's an opportunity. How much does night coaling impact uh, recovery from heat stress? Well, there have been, there have been studies uh, done in Missouri uh, that looked at that and in other locations. And you, you can have some pretty dramatic impacts with nighttime cooling. Uh, because um, it, I did some uh, work in the early 80s in, in Florida, and the um, 
the dairy cow that's out in the environment in Florida, it's it's not till about four o'clock in the morning before she gets back to a normal body temperature. So she's panting all night long to get, uh, and they and typically cows will go out in the open and get out from under their barns because the barns are have hot metal roofs, so that if they're allowed to, they'll go out in the open to actually radiate heat to the sky. So um, um, the question, you know, was how much is nighttime cooling offer? Quite a bit. But we that that's. Uh, one of the things that a lot of producers will do, and, and here's, you know, producers say, well, the sun's gone down, I'm turning off the cooling. Um, and so the cows aren't cold all night. Uh, another thing you see, you know, where the cows are dying, when you look at death rates, which go up dramatically, they're dying in sick part because stresses are additive and, uh, if you go to uh, sick barns, how many sick barns are cooling cows? Almost none. If you go to a dairy and look at their sick barn, they, they say, well, these cows are not producing uh, milk. You know, I, I can't afford to pay for cooling. But they don't think about the cost of losing that cow and uh, how much that would be their bottom line. So cooling uh, the sick barn is a major opportunity. Uh, you know, it's a management opportunity we really haven't fully uh, explored. You mentioned another nighttime cooling. Uh, there's, still, there's still some management opportunities. Uh, when I said we reached our maximum, that's as far as the engineering capabilities of cooling. We, you know, these laws of thermodynamics don't don't budge, so we, we pretty much know what our limitations are there. There's still opportunities in the management area, potentially in bedding, bedding material. Hey, Clay, um, to, your, to your point and to expand on what Bob was just mentioning, you know, the Arizona Valley in Clovis, New Mexico, the daytime highs are not very different, right? And, um, but the, the investment put into cooling on those dairies is very different in large part because of the nighttime cooling that Clovis has an advantage on. So if you get a chance to do some touring of dairies, take a look at the dairies in Clovis versus the, the Arizona Valley and both of those daytime highs are not very different. The nighttime lows are very different. That uh, wind speed in Clovis is quite a bit higher. Mm -hmm. That helps. <laughs> You know, it's 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 here in Arizona. We start preparing for our summer months in in March and April. And as as nutritionists, we're trying to encourage to turn on cooling sooner than later. Um, this year, for example, we're we're hitting 106 yesterday. Uh, by the end of the week, we'll be 115 degrees, um, and we're late. It's a late start. Uh, I don't know how that what that means um, for the fall if we're going to be hot during Thanksgiving, but we'll we'll find out. Um, but it's one of those things that, yeah, it just, just because you feel great outside, we're not 1400 pounds, thank God. So, so we don't know what that means. You know, we have, we hopefully have better sweating capacities, uh, than they do. And, and we have air conditioning and we've adapted to wherever we live, um, a little bit better. So those are things that I think people forget or don't understand or don't see. And, 
and trying to save cost on things is is sometimes um something I wonder if doesn't hurt us the way the way we think about that because while it's important to save cost, you have animals that are biological animals that it doesn't matter what it costs. They need what they need in order to produce and to stay healthy. And when we talk about, well, I'm not going to turn the fans on for a while because I can save some money on electricity. I, I have sometimes said, you know, are we in this industry to save money or to make milk and be productive? Because that's the offset that you have to look at in that investment of what we're doing for these animals. Good Regarding calves, I mean, we're, so we're well aware of the the in utero uh, impacts of heat stress uh, on the, on that calf in utero. What about what about heat stress in calves once they're born? What do, what do we know about that and the impact? Uh, and what can we do um, once these calves are born? Yeah, yeah. Uh, there's a there's a big relationship between body mass and rate of heat exchange. So calves are going to heat faster and they're also going to cool faster. So the uh, uh, it is important to pay attention to what is happening to calves. They're, they're going to be more thermal tolerant uh, because of their smaller body mass uh, and their lower feet, heat production. But it's still um, it's still possible to reduce their growth rate and uh, increase the death rate uh, because of disease, especially in the first 30 days, um, if the animals are being heat stressed. So um, not many producers actually evaluate their calves for heat stress, but you know it's a similar situation. You can you don't necessarily have to take rectal temperatures. You can look at respiration rate and get a skin surface temperature and get a pretty good idea of whether the animal needs more cooling. So it's an opportunity to uh, imp improve uh, productivity at, at the calf level. Isn't there a lot of research too coming out about uh, the dam being pregnant? with the baby and not being cooled and going under heat stress and then that dam not being able to progress fast enough or affecting milk yield down the road land spot uh, offspring have lower production too not just the dam yeah. but the, the, well that's what i'm saying the calf ends up being born and having those reper those repercussions from the mom being stressed the dam being stressed with heat stress is is, well, is my understanding there's reduced passive transfer uh, because of the stress in the calf, which sets it up for a higher death rate, especially if it's hot, it's going to seek environments that aren't good, which are muddy, uh, pathogen-laden environments that can lead to respiratory or digestive tract disease, which are the two big killers for calves. So. And I don't know what the management percentage would be, but I, I don't know many people who effectively put cooling in their dry cows and close-ups because of cost, because of availability, whatever that is. But, you know, whether it's just fans or fans with misters or corral cools or, but. It's, um, it is because the producers don't realize the value. Um, 
what I like to say is the, the animals are basically trapped in the environment you create. They don't have the ability to go turn the gate and walk away. They're, they're trapped in that environment. So it's the knowledge of the producer, it's us, um, recognizing what stresses are around the cow and trying to remove those as much as possible. And if you get really high, high producing herds, that's basically what the manager is doing is reducing all the stressors around animals because every time you reduce a stress, production goes up. We used to have this paradox about BST. It said BST is a stress on dairy animals. Well, milk yield cannot go up if the animal's being stressed. So it's a paradox to say that high producing cows are being stressed. They're not being stressed. They're, they're the healthiest cows in the herd. They're also the, the cows that are eating the best, and they're they're in the best environment. So um, uh, we have to move away from the idea that high production itself is a major stressor. It's 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 the management of the animals that is the major. Hmm. High production can only occur in the absence of stress. Yeah. So, Lance, are these these calves that are experiencing heat stress? Are are they uh, are they experiencing leaky gut? Yep. Um, and then, of course, you have the stress of weaning on the top, and like Bob already mentioned, the, the stack stressor concept, right? Um, Attitude. And I, I don't think it's a coincidence then that, uh, the, you know, like I said, the biological consequences of heat stress are so similar among species. Pigs, yeah. chickens, calves, dairy cows. Um, I don't think that's a coincidence. It's emanating from the gut. Um, and like what Rosemary just mentioned a few minutes ago, the, the negative consequences of in utero heat stress uh, linger for a long time in the milk yield and the lactating dairy cow, I think Shelly Rhodes' group showed that nicely. But that also occurs in pigs. Uh, we've demonstrated that multiple times now where piglets coming from a heat stress sow grow slower, they become fatter, they're less feed efficient, right? Um, so our understanding of this in utero heat stress affecting future productivity, I think Dennis Armstrong did a lot of that stuff uh, in, in Saudi Arabia looking at future reproduction and future milk. It's, it's a huge opportunity for us. Hmm. Yeah. Going back, Scott, to your um, comment about the future, I wanted to just add that there's, I, don't, I can't remember the exact number, but there's hundreds and hundreds of patents for dairy and technology that are on, on the up and coming. And I think that's gonna be something huge for our industry if, if there's enough investment and enough startup there, right, to get that going. But um, I think, as, as Bob said, you know, the mechanical part of engineering and, and what's available as, as things become less cost effective, or I guess more cost effective with the improvement of technology, right? I remember when TVs were several thousand dollars, now you can get one for a couple hundred, right? So I think as that evolves and things become less expensive in the technology world, that's only leaving more room to be more cost effective on the dairy with more technology. And I think, uh, the management um, technology that's out there to be able to improve your herd is also something that, that the future holds for being able to manage these herds better, 
and uh, do better management. But um, I think it's just a lot of that. Uh, what does the research say about heat stress? What does the research say about how we should be managing cows? Um, and not just focusing on, on necessarily what we want as humans, but what the cows need. Mm, yeah, well said. And with Precis that, I don't know if, yeah, go ahead, Bob. It's a precision farming uh, is, is definitely going to be applied to dairy. And, and so remote sensing of animals uh, for their thermal status can be tied right into cooling systems that operate based on the animals as a thermometer rather than using a thermometer on the, on the farm. So. Oh, interesting concept. Yeah. I was just going to say, I heard him call last call and I need another drink. So we'll get another round for everybody before they, they shut it down totally. But that means it's time to, to wrap it up here and kind of wrap up questions. I'd like to leave each of you. And, and we actually kind of started answering it, but is, is what's next uh, or what needs to be next. And then maybe a take home message uh, for nutritionists and dairy farmers that might, might be listening in. And uh, why don't I, Anybody want to raise their hand? Lance, would you like to go first? Sure. Well, I am biased, of course, but I think the, the gut is the big, is where it's at. So identifying target molecules from the feed industry's perspective, I think we'll have, a, we'll pay the big dividends. But at the end of the day, from a producer's perspective, right, modifying the environment still remains probably the, the biggest return on investment that they have, right? And, um, that's where I'll leave it. Okay. Rosemary. I, I think Lance hit it on the head with his, his gut. I mean, look at the, the humans and what we're finding out about gut and how much it affects us and how that creates, you know, our health. And so I think that's definitely an important thing that we need to understand further, which Lance has done a great job of, of doing for us. Um, I agree that, you know, we need to give them the best environment. But again, I go back to the basics of management and managing for the cows and not for what, what we think is always best or what we feel is always best because the cow is the cow is the cow. Mm. Good point. And Bob, will give you the final word. Oh, sure. Um, I think in addition to um, what both Lance and Rosemary have talked about is the sustainability aspect has got to be tied into it because of the net zero um, uh, approach that the dairy industry is taking. But virtually everything that we're going to be doing has to be viewed in that context. If it, how is it going to impact the carbon footprint? And so whatever technologies we do decide to use will also have to have an impact on net zero, um, regardless of you know, whether it's cool, feeding, whatever. Um, you know, there, there is a, a question whether methanogens are even needed in the rumen uh, gut, or whether they're just taking advantage of available excess hydrogen in, in the rumen. So uh, I think we've got to find out. There are some approaches that looking at wiping out the, uh, as one example of what, uh, Coming down. Well said. Great way to wrap it up. Rosemary, Bob, 
Lance, yep. uh, thank you so much for joining us tonight. We keep learning more and more about the lifelong impacts of heat stress can have on dairy cattle. So I look forward to bringing you guys back together once again here at the exchange for an update. And I also want to thank our loyal listeners for stopping by at the exchange to share some time with us. If you like what you heard, please remember to drop us a five-star rating on your way out. And uh, don't forget to request your Real Science Exchange t-shirt. All you need to do is like or subscribe to the Real Science Exchange on your favorite uh, podcast platform or YouTube. And send us a screenshot along with your address and shirt size to anh.marketing at balchem.com. Our Real Science Lecture series of webinars continues the ruminant-focused topics on the first Tuesday of every month. Visit balchemanh.com slash realscience to see upcoming events and past topics. We hope to see you next time here at the Real Science Exchange, where it's always happy hour and you're always among friends. Stay cool. <laughs>